the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The destruction of Jerusalem is foretold by Jesus here in Luke 21, next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. And again, greetings in Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. We find ourselves back in Luke chapter 21 today, looking at verses 5 through 38. And over the rest of the week, we'll focus in on the prophetic aspect of the destruction of Jerusalem, as recorded for us by Luke, coming from Jesus himself. The destruction of Jerusalem and the significance of this destruction is the topic of our time together today. Here now is Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast. Today we're going to talk about an event that took place just over 1,900 years ago in the Middle East, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D. And we're not going to talk about it simply because we love history, as most of us here do, or because of curiosity about antiquity, but because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught this passage, and it impacts us and our lives in 2014. And let me first of all tell you about some books that I would highly recommend to you, actually some of which have been a great blessing in my life. And the first one is called An Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kick. It's the best book that I know of that explains Matthew 24, Luke 21, a parallel passage, and Revelation 20. Now, by God's grace, Dr. Rush Dooney gave me my copy, and God has used it in my life in a very dramatic way. And I highly recommend this book to you. Then a book written in 1885, which was reprinted just a few years ago, I believe in 2006, The Destruction of Jerusalem, which is an absolute, irresistible proof of the divine origins for Christianity. And much of what I'm going to say will be from this book, The Destruction of Jerusalem by George Peter Holford. And then there's a book by a Roman citizen named Josephus. The book is entitled The History of the Jewish War from A.D. 63 to 73. Or you can get his entire works, which includes the history of the Jews from creation to the fall of Jerusalem, with also a blow-by-blow description of what the Romans did to Jerusalem, exactly fulfilling what Jesus prophesied. And yet, Josephus was not a Christian. He, in fact, does all he can to avoid mentioning Jesus. In his work of approximately 1,200 pages, there are only 12 lines on Jesus. So that should show you the attitude that Josephus had toward Christ. 
But Josephus knew what he was talking about. The name of the Roman general that besieged and conquered Jerusalem was Titus, and he was accompanied by a servant whose name was Josephus. For you young people, there's a book by G.A. Hinty titled, For the Temple, the Tale of the Fall of Jerusalem. And parents, this is worth having your children read. In fact, I'd be surprised if you didn't enjoy this one yourself. Now, I'm sure most of you know who Matthew Henry was, one of the greatest commentators, uh, I think, that has ever lived. Many of you have his, probably have his six-volume commentary, verse by verse, in your libraries. But if you don't, you should consider adding it to your library. This man lived in the 1700s, and in his commentary on Luke, he refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. as, quote, a little day of judgment. And that what took place in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was a type and a figure of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said the destruction of Jerusalem would be, as it were, the destruction of the world to those whose hearts were bound up in the world. In A.D. 70, the Jewish nation was destroyed because their hearts were wrapped up in the world. Let's now remind ourselves of the context of the destruction of Jerusalem. What has Jesus been doing ever since Palm Sunday? Now, this is just actually a few days after Palm Sunday. So what has he been doing? He's been establishing his absolute divine authority over Israel and over all of mankind. Remember, he comes riding in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. And the first thing he does is take possession of the temple and cleanse it. And then he proceeds to teach the people the Word of God in that temple up until the Lord's Supper and His betrayal. The last thing He taught them in the temple, concluding His teaching there and pointing out in no uncertain terms His absolute authority was to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem for rejecting His authority. The last thing He taught them was that Jerusalem would be destroyed in their lifetime, and the prophecy did come true in 70 A.D. exactly as Jesus said it would. The destruction of Jerusalem, listen carefully, is an irrefutable proof of the divine authority of Jesus Christ, as we shall see. In the 1700s, There was a man man by the name of Urkshan who was a famous Presbyterian preacher who went to the trial of a man named Williams who was charged with the crime of publishing Thomas Paine's book, Age of Reason. And at that trial, Urkshan said this, I consider the prophecy relative to the Jewish nation if there were nothing else to support Christianity as absolutely irresistible. So after you consider the fall of Jerusalem, and you are not a Christian, and you don't become a Christian, it is because you don't want to become 
a Christian, unquote. Now let's see why he made such a claim. There is a parallel passage in Matthew 24. And these are two different accounts, Luke and Matthew, of Jesus prophesying on the fall of Jerusalem. Matthew's account is large and the most complete of the two, while Luke is more of an abbreviation of this incident. Luke leaves out the things Matthew includes because the things he includes that Luke leaves out are from more of a Jewish mindset that the Jews could really understand. Luke was addressing his book to non-Jewish Greeks, so he left out much of what Matthew included. Therefore, if we really want to know the entirety of what Jesus said concerning the fall of Jerusalem, we've got to read both as parallel accounts together, helping to interpret each other. Now, someone might ask after reading Luke 21, doesn't this spectacular language apply to the second coming of Christ? Why all the concern of the destruction of a relatively small Jewish Middle Eastern city in 70 AD? What does that have to do with me? With all of the struggles and decisions I'm trying to make in 2014 in the United States? Let me answer that question before we go on. The fall of Jerusalem was one of the most important events in all of human history, and the world has never been the same since. In fact, there never would have been founded, as it were, the United States if Jerusalem had not been destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. That is how pertinent it is. It resulted in the cutting off of the Jewish nation from God's kingdom because they rejected the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is more astounding, as you think about it, is that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, we see God telling us that the Old Testament dispensation of the covenant has come to a dead end. With all of its sacrifices with its temple, with all of its historical priests, it's over. The Levitical sacrificial order of the Old Testament has been replaced in such a way that no one may ever go back to it. Do you realize, in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, God made it impossible for anyone ever to worship Him the way they did in the Old Testament? Because you had to have a temple. The sacrifices had to be made in the temple. The Levitical services were confined to the temple. And the temple was demolished. The Old Testament order of bringing God's covenant blessings to His people was over. The new arrangement, the new dispensation of God's covenant in Christ has come. The Old Testament shadows have been fulfilled. The New Testament realities of Christ and the gospel and the Christian church are now set in place. The old temple was destroyed to make way for the new temple in Christ. The old temple was burned to the ground to make way for the new Jerusalem from heaven. The old ethnic Israel was wiped out so that there might appear the new Israel of God that is not distinguished by ethnic roots. That's why the destruction of Jerusalem 
in A.D. 70 is so important. And in Luke's story of Christ, he makes much of the fall of Jerusalem to his Greek audience. And I think it was for an apologetic and evangelistic purpose. I think in the last 100 years, we have hurt ourselves as a Christian church by not using Jesus' prophecy concerning the fall of Jerusalem and evangelism more than we have. And I sincerely hope that you take this week's and next week's sermon on Jerusalem's destruction and you use them to help your evangelistic method. Give these messages to weak Christian friends that need to really be established in the Word of God. And you'll see why as we go on. Get out your Bibles. And let's just see a few of the places where Luke refers to the fall of Jerusalem in the first generation of the church. And we can go all the way back to chapter 3, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Notice his words in the ninth verse and the 17th verse of Luke 3. This is Luke and all these verses talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's something serious that's about to happen, a calamity of some, some sort as far as John the Baptist is concerned. Then in chapter 9, verse 27, after prophesying that the Jews would reject Jesus and kill him and that he would arise from the grave, he told the first century hearers, now listen, verse 27 of chapter 9, I tell you truly, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now chapter 11, verse 50. In his denunciation of the Pharisees, he says that he will charge the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world against this generation. God is going to hold that first century Jewish generation accountable for the blood of all the prophets that the Jews shed throughout their history. Then, Luke in, then look in uh, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, and then he prophesies, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Chapter 17, verses 22 through 37. Jesus here specifically prophesies that he will come in judgment, not physical, but providentially to Jerusalem and destroy it to prove that he has established his kingdom. And because it will come so unexpectedly and suddenly, in verse 31, he urges people, on that day let no one who was in the rooftop or who are in the house go down to take them away, and likewise let not the one who is in the field turn back. Then in chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, Jesus couldn't be any clearer in prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, 
For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you or a siege and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize that God had visited you in Christ. Then in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, in the conclusion of his parable condemning the Jewish leaders for rejecting him as the Son of God, Jesus told them that for their unbelief, the stone which the builders rejected, Jesus Christ, which became the chief cornerstone for believers, would break them to pieces and scatter them like dust. So you see, the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more he emphasizes that God's judgment is going to fall upon them in the first century. Now, how do we know that Luke, Luke 21 applies to the fall of Jerusalem and not to the second coming of Christ, as so many people believe? Well, he's showing it in several ways throughout the sermon. But the key verse is in verse 32 in Luke 21. Verse 32, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Now, I want you to notice two words. The first is the word generation. The word generation in Greek here refers to the generation of Jewish people then living during the earthly ministry life of Jesus and immediately thereafter. Now, for those of you who have the New American Standard Bible, if you notice, there's a footnote that says the word can be translated race, but that is not true. This Greek word for generation can never be translated accurately as a nation or a race of people in successive generations. The word generation has reference to Jesus' contemporaries, people at that time. And then you have the second word, a demonstrative pronoun, this generation. So Jesus doesn't leave any leaf unturned. I am talking, he says, to this generation, this generation of people to whom I am speaking. Jesus is saying, in effect, you'll see the things take place that I'm describing in this 21st chapter of Luke. In Matthew 16, 28, Jesus speaks of a great catastrophe that was about to happen to the first century Jews. And he says this, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Not literally, figuratively, which you'll see. Until they see the Son of Man come in His providence and establish once and for all that He reigns in the destruction of Jerusalem exactly as He has prophesied. So let's look at our text. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When he says, And while some were taking, talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus says, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. The temple in Jerusalem was considered one of the wonders of, 
of the ancient world. It was the center of the religious life of the Jews. Malachi had promised that when Jesus came to the temple, it would be for a coming of judgment and devastation. And now Jesus is saying that the time has come when this spectacular, gorgeous temple will be demolished. One stone will not be left upon another as a result of God's judgment on the Jews for rejecting Jesus' messianic authority. So in verse 7, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, you would certainly expect them to ask these questions. When is this going to happen? And is there any sign that we can watch for that tells us it's about to happen? So in verse, verses 8 through 19, Jesus tells them what the non-signs are. He said, now, there are certain things that are going to happen between now and the destruction of the temple, but these aren't the signs of the destruction of the temple. In verses 18, 8 through 19, it says, all right, now here are some things that are not signs, and he said, take heed that you be not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, I am he, and the time is at hand, don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation shall rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, and bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony so make up your minds not to prepare before time to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all on my account, yet not a hair of your head will perish." By your perseverance, you will win your souls. So here Jesus is clear, clearly states that these things are neither signs of the end of Jerusalem, nor are they signs of the end of the world. And next week we'll see exactly what they do say to us. And you can look through Acts and the rest of the New Testament to see the fulfilling of Jesus' prophecy. False Christ arose in the first century, according to Acts nine or Acts eight. Wars, famines, and the like took place also in the first century, according to Acts eleven. In Rome, four emperors came to violent deaths in eighteen months. Thousands upon thousands of Jews throughout the Roman Empire were killed. The Church of Christ was persecuted. Read Acts eight and how Paul persecuted the church. 
There were betrayals of Christians. Study 2 Timothy. False prophets arose according to Acts 20 and Romans 16. The love of many grew cold, Hebrews 10 and Galatians 3. And many antichrists arose in the first century. Read 1 John 2 and 2 John 7. But one of the most remarkable things about the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the escape of the Christians. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408 408- You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. (music) 